don't have to like everything we say. You don't have to listen to us. know there was a time, a time when Kiev was more powerful than Moscow. There was also a time when Ukraine and America were adversaries. The relationship between Russia and Ukraine spans more than 1,000 years going back to the 9th century. Those historical ties are complex, multifaceted, spanning centuries of interactions. There's alliances, conflicts, cultural exchanges. The history and relationship is deep and intertwined, encompassing both cooperation and conflict throughout the ages. The geopolitical and cultural dynamics between the two countries continue to shape their interactions on the global stage. If it sounds a little weird, it's because I wrote that. But now, the Russian-Ukraine intel perspective. The history, going back a thousand years. What have all three parties done? Because there's three parties involved in why this is happening. What led to this, who saw it coming and why, and what can be done about it? How's it end up? Will it ever end? That's what we're going to talk about right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. So while in my opinion, this will be pretty good based on the stuff I do, it depends on if you're into it. If you've been waiting for this as long as I've been promising it, it could be a, it could be disappointing. Uh, depends on what you think you're getting here. But I actually was, uh, had this about finished up. I was redoing some stuff. This is a while back, like as in a few months ago. And I, I learned a valuable lesson that I should not work on notes and script writing for these shows. In the wonderful, beautiful Idaho outdoors next to a campfire. Because a lot of things could go up in flames when a little gust of wind comes by. So a lot of work had to be redone. I think this is just as good, probably better than what I had. I was able to use some different programs to insist in writing. Some of this is, uh, quite a bit of this will be script-based, but I've been practicing and working on it. Not that you care, I just, I want to get, uh, I want to do more research on when I do things like this which this is the last one I'm doing like this. Probably the last time I'm going to talk Russian cranes is somebody nukes somebody and get back into our regular scheduled program of things we're going to do, moving on to the promise of reading the news, assessing, evaluating information. That's what we're going to be getting into. But for today, I want to finish this up. And when I do ones like this, I want them to be well-researched, well-written, which I'm trying to do. And I'm using this more for practice. This is uh a lot less like an area study than the last one, but it is a bit of history and understanding all the things that have taken place over time, which all nations have pieces like this that we can look back in retrospect and see some of it in retrospect, 
why things went down the way they did, but also understand that some of it was clearly inevitable and all the signs were there for anybody to see. Starting with some stats on Ukraine. This is from 2021 before the invasion. So these are not accurate to now. Some of this has changed quite a bit. But in 2021, Ukraine was a, well, still is a fairly large country, but over 600,000 square kilometers with 44 million people. Per capita income was about 3,700 US dollars per person. Their GDP was over 200 billion, which 40% of their exports are agriculture and food, which is wheat, barley, corn, sunflower, and sugar beets. That accounts for about 10% of the world's wheat trade. That's why it was such a big deal when they talked about shutting down those ports last summer, and then they eventually did, and the effects it could have had on wheat supply, especially in nations like the United States. At that time, one in six Ukrainians were ethnic Russians, with one in three speaking Russian natively. Before the Russian invasion, 71% of the people of Ukraine believed that they were already at war with Russia. 72% of Ukrainians considered Russia a hostile state. 70 rejected the idea of the Holy Rus. That's the idea that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. 33% said that they are ready to take up arms against a Russian invasion, and 21% said they are ready to stage a civil resistance. 67% want to join the European Union, and 59% wanted to join NATO. Looking at some of the major historical significant things throughout time before we get into the details, Part of the relationship went back to what's called the medieval Kivan Rus. In the medieval period, both Russia and Ukraine were part of the Kivan Rus, a loose federation of Slavic and Finno-Ugric tribes centered around the city of Kiev. Kiev's been around for a long time. The entity laid the foundation for the cultural and linguistic ties between the two regions. In the 13th century, the Mongols invaded and conquered the Kivan Rus territories, leading to fragmentation of the region into different principalities, some of which eventually became part of Russia and some part of Ukraine, as well as other nations in the area. And then the Cossacks in the 17th and 18th century. Ukraine experienced the establishment of the Cossack Hetemanate, a semi-autonomous region under Polish, Lithuanian, and then later Russian rule. The Cossacks played a part in Ukrainian history and maintained a degree of independence from both powers. Then we have the Partitions of Poland. Throughout the 18th century, Ukraine was affected by the partition of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. The western parts of Ukraine came under Austrian and Polish rule, while the eastern parts fell under Russian control. The Russian Empire followed various conflicts and treaties. The majority of Ukrainian territories came under Russian rule by the end of the 18th century. Throughout the 19th century, Ukraine experienced what's called Russification policies aimed at integrating the Ukrainian population into the Russian Empire. Ukrainian nationalism was the late 19th and early 20th centuries, saw the growth of Ukrainian national identity and movements for greater autonomy and independence. Ukrainian language and cultures were actively suppressed under Russian rule. In the Soviet area, the Russian Revolution of 1917 and subsequent civil war led to the establishment of the Ukrainian People's Republic and the Soviet Union. Ukrainian was divided between the Russian Soviet Federation Socialist Republic and the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. In the time of the Soviet Republic, Russia was the most powerful of the 15 Soviet states, and Ukraine was the second most powerful. In World War II, Ukraine was heavily impacted by the war. The western parts were under Polish, Romanian, and German occupation, while the eastern parts were occupied by the Soviet Union. This war had lasting effects on population and infrastructure as far as recovery from the war and all its devastation. In 1991, there was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, known as the USSR. Ukraine gained independence. Soviet legacy, ethics, and linguistic diversity and economic ties with Russia created challenges and opportunities for the new Ukrainian state. 
In contemporary relations since independence, Russia and Ukraine have had complex relations marked by energy disputes, obviously territorial disputes, notably Crimea, and now Donbass, economic ties and political tensions. For understanding the war and things we've talked about in the past, some specifics on three key locations in Ukraine that matter and why they're important. We look at Kyrgyzstan. It's located in southern Ukraine, bordering Crimea and the Black Sea. It serves as a gateway to the Crimean Peninsula. Controlling Kyrgyzstan could enable a military along the coast, allowing for potential maritime access and influence over the Black Sea, or in the case of a Russian was to take it, more influence, if not total control of the Black Sea. For economic importance, they have infrastructure, including energy and transportation routes. The Denapir River flows through Kyrgyzstan, and the River Delta is crucial for shipping and agriculture. Then we have Odessa. That's your economic and trade hub. Odessa is a port city on the Black Sea, plays a vital role in regional trade. It's historically been a key economic center for Ukraine, serving as a gateway for exports and imports. Controlling Odessa would provide access to significant economic resources. It's also known for its diverse population and has historical ties to Russia. This is why I'd mentioned previously that Russia probably wasn't just going to go burn that place to the ground. They're probably going to go in on street-to-street fighting. It looks like they picked a middle ground and did do some shelling there. The city's demographics and culture dynamics add to its significance in the conflict. I just thought they would take more care there, but I was wrong. And then we have Crimea, which has very strategic and military importance. It's, it's a region with military infrastructure, including the Russian Black Sea fleets, based in Sevastopol, their largest city. The peninsula provides Russia with access to the Black Sea, Mediterranean Sea, enabling power projection influence across the region. It also has a complex history, including being part of Russia until 1954 when it was transferred to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. It has a significant ethnic Russian population and has been a source of tension in relations between the nations. The context of the conflict is fairly simple. Control over these regions would significantly impact each side's ability to project military power. So whoever controls them will win the war. That's why I've always said the war will be won in the South, at least the way we traditionally look at war fighting. You can secure economic resources and insert influence over the blotter region. It's, it's very significant important to have Ukraine when it comes to these locations, the Black Sea and trade. That's only part of it, though. Now, there's a series of events and things that happened throughout time going back to the 9th century. While some of those are just initially kind of a backstory idea, they do, you'll see, feed in later to other decisions that are made based on a historical perspective of leaders in Russia as well as Ukraine. And I think there's three right questions we should have been asking all along that very few people are asking now. But in the 9th century, the state of Kivion Rus, home of the Slavic peoples, and country most of today's Europe, Ukraine, Belarus, Russia, and with Kiev as their capital, this area we previously discussed. Between 980 and 1015, it was ruled by a grand prince by the name of Volodymyr, and that's the correct pronunciation is Volodymyr. Based on the language of the time, if you were to translate that into Russian, it'd be Vladimir, just like Vladimir Putin, or in Ukrainian, it would be Volodymyr, just like Volodymyr Zelensky. So it's just kind of a, I guess, a trivia, interesting point of all the Vlads involved in this. But the lineage for Russia, Ukrainian, Belarus all come from this Slavic state. It starts to get good in the 1700s, or bad, depending on your point of view. This is when Catherine the Great begins to Russify Ukrainians, trying to force Russian integration. They shipped ethnic Russians to the region of Ukraine so that they could live there, and then schools were told to teach the Russian language. By the year 1800, the Ukrainian language was completely banned. 
And then we make a big jump and go to 1930. Stalin in Russia creates a famine in Ukraine called the Holodomor, a man-made famine resulting in a significant loss of life in Ukraine between 3.5 million and 5 million people. That area was then repopulated with ethnic Russians. And then in 1940, 150,000 ethnic Tartars are relocated out of Ukraine to Uzbek, and they too were replaced with Russians. See, the reason Eastern Ukraine has so many native Russian speakers and ethnic Russian is by design. The area has coal, iron, and fertile land, which is all a benefit to them, especially if that's all Russia maintains control of. But there's forced historical connections with Russia. This is why the Holy Rus idea comes from Ukrainians and Russia are one people, but it's more like they're one forced people. We go past 1940 and start getting a little more specific. April 4th, 1949, there's an anti-Soviet accord signed that is formerly known as the North Atlantic Treaty. Its purpose was to protect domestic freedom, counter any future Soviet aggression. And then the treaty creates a balance of power based on collective security, the core principle laid out in Article 5 that we most of us refer to as an attack on one is an attack on all. NATO was a development of liberal nations, 12 of them pushing to establish democracy and pursue shared interests with anti-communist agenda, which was in their interests. Russia, a communist nation, would see this alliance as working against their interests because they are communists. This would be the beginning of a series of events leading to the invasion of Ukraine. Also the beginning of a series of events leading to other things like Crimea, Georgia, and possibly future events. We'll see how things play out. When we get to 1954, Russian President Khrushchev transfers Crimea from Russian Soviet Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in hopes that it would strengthen ties between the Ukrainian and Russian people, recognizing so much of this stuff had been forced, but those Russians live there now. That's, that's their life. Perhaps we can strengthen these ties. And then in 1955, Russia finally responds to the formation of NATO by creating an organization of identical design, opposing the ideals of NATO an alliance of nations created known as the Warsaw Pact. There are five historical actions by the West that Russia saw as justification and reasoning for forming this pact. In 1610, there was the Polish occupation of the Kremlin. In 1708, Swedes invaded Russia. In 1812, we had the Napoleonic invasion of Russia. They were at war with Germany in World War I, and then they were invaded by Germany in World War II. What had happened was... What really happened with Russia and its people is suspicion and fear is growing. That the West is becoming too commonplace. They saw future developments of democracy and freedom as attacks on their sovereignty by NATO, which they believed to become a tool of American imperialism. Four things to note that led to this idea and this fear was in 1989, the Berlin Wall collapsed, which led to 1990s unification of Germany, which is significant because... Negotiations with the Russian premier made by President Bush agreed the West would stop its expansion and the NATO would be dissolved. At least that's the story. While the U.S. maintains that there's never been such an agreement with Russia, there are actually hundreds of documents and memorandums still in existence, some of which can be found in our own national archives, indicating this agreement was, in fact, made. Russia then dissolved the Warsaw Pact in 1991. And then in late December 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed. That's how quick that all happened in two years. Berlin Wall, Germany unified and joins NATO completely under the idea that NATO will go away and will stop expanding. So Russia dissolved the Warsaw Pact, but then the Union collapsed. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the 12-member NATO state stayed alive. 
They kept membership open and began accepting former Warsaw Pact members. That's a direct threat to Russia as they saw it because three of these Warsaw Pact members were former Soviet states. Today, there's still 31 members with Sweden still awaiting approval from Turkey and Hungary. And in 2021, NATO acknowledged three aspiring members, including Ukraine, Georgia, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. So while Ukraine's obvious, and we all know that, most people don't know Georgia, prior to 2021, that was attacked by Russia, and then Bosnia, which isn't going to be an issue there when it comes to Russia. So NATO is continuing to expand and grow throughout Europe. Now, in this time of the fall of the Soviet Union, one of the things understanding about what Ukraine had is they were the second most powerful state. They housed many defense industries, agriculture, and used most of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. In fact, after the collapse of the USR, they became independent, as did Russia and other Soviet states, and they inherited a lot of nuclear assets. The unclassified numbers are 176 ICBMs, 1,249 warheads, 44 strategic bombers, and 700 nuclear cruise missiles, and 200 tactical nuclear weapons. A few years later, they would actually return all that stuff back to Russia, which makes you wonder if they had kept it. Would Russia have invaded them then? Considering all the nuclear fright, the end of the Cold War, and what was going on at the time, I don't think that would have been allowed to happen. I don't think they would have tried it. I think more likely answer is, had they kept those weapons and not given them back, perhaps there wouldn't even have been an invasion today, and Ukraine might have been in NATO earlier. But because of the president at the time, who was probably a Russian puppet, is why they gave him back. We find out that, you know, prior to the invasion, part of what really got Russia was NATO and its members began partnerships. Before you become a NATO member, there's types of partnerships that NATO or other nations will create with you. And they accepted former members of this security belt that Russia had established in Eastern Europe, as well as former Soviet states. So, of course, this hurts Russia's security interests, which is why they see those moves as encroachment on their security that you always hear them talking about. That's a big part of it. But they also made several statements. That's Russia. And attempts at negotiations that were ignored by NATO. Then later in 1991, Crimea joins Ukraine when Ukraine became independent to follow the USR. Now, that wasn't really such a big deal as they were technically already with them. But they gained special autonomy in this deal at the fall of the Soviet Union. They remained home to Russian military bases, and Russia promised to respect Crimea's autonomy. While those Russians didn't believe Crimea should have been allowed to join Ukraine, it had been part of Ukraine for the past 37 years. And then in December 1994, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus signed on to what's called the Budapest Agreement, which prohibited the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom, and the United States from threatening or using military force or economic coercion against Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan, except in self-defense or otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. The Charter of the United Nations is the foundational treaty of what created the United Nations. This brings us to our first real question, the first right question we should have been asking. Under these laws and ideas, what exactly is self-defense, and who determines if the circumstance fits the criteria? In February 2007, we have the Munich Conference. This is a very important event with an important statement, question from Vladimir Putin. What he said was, NATO's put its frontline forces on our borders. The expansion represents a serious provocation that reduces the level of mutual trust. 
and we have the right to ask. Against whom is this expansion intended, and what happened to the insurances of our Western partners made after the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact? When world leaders make statements and give speeches, tons of people help them write their speeches. They're very significant important on every single word in these. And at this time in 2007, he was still referring to NATO and the West as our Western partners and alluding to the United States who had made the deal. So in 2007, he was still in a position where he's attempting to negotiate and things could have been done differently by NATO. And don't get me wrong, this whole thing ain't about NATO's bad and Russia's defending themselves. There's a lot more coming that will explain everybody's roles. But after this happened later in 2007, 50 recognized foreign policy experts in the United States, which included former military officers, academics, and diplomats, sent a letter to President Clinton. They advised him that the efforts to expand NATO were a policy error of historic proportions, which we can see now is true. And for many years, that would be echoed by all kinds of diplomats and foreign policy experts. In fact, a few notable ones, of which there are many. So William Burns, a former ambassador to Russia, he once said that Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines to the Russian elite. And then he added, I have yet to find anyone who views Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russia's interests. And then George Kennan, he's considered the intellectual father of America's containment policy during the Cold War. He said in May 1998 in a New York Times interview, in regards to the Senate's ratification of NATO's first round of expansion, I think it is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely and will affect their policies. I think it's a tragic mistake. There's no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. And he was right. They did react adversely. And then former Secretary of Defense under President Bush and President Obama, Secretary Robert Gates, stated in his memoir the belief that the relationship with Russia had been badly mismanaged after Bush left office in 1993. Among other missteps, U.S. agreements with the Romanian and Bulgarian governments to rotate troops through bases in those countries was a needless provocation, an implicit rebuke to the younger President Bush. Gates asserted that trying to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO was truly overreaching. He called it a reckless ignoring what the Russians considered their own vital national interests. There's been many other statements of a similar nature, but what they're really arguing here is that Russians' protest to this expansion and these actions by NATO definitely have merit. And then in April 2008, we get to the Bucharest summit. This is where NATO members promised that Georgia would eventually join the organization. April 2008. And a few months later in August 2008, Russia invades Georgia. But what else happened at the Bucharest summit? Ukraine had its aspirations to join NATO back then. Allies agreed at the 2008 summit that Ukraine will become a member. They also agreed that the next step for Ukraine on its way to membership was the Membership Action Plan, known as MAP. It's a program of political, economic, defense, security, legal reforms, programs and stuff they have to sign on to and get involved with in order to achieve membership. You know, in 2009, the program was introduced as Ukraine's key instrument to advance kind of a Euro-Atlantic integration and related forms. In fact, later from 2010 to 2014, Ukraine pursued a non-alignment policy, which it terminated in response to Russia's aggression when separatists from Russia's support began an insurgency in Donbass. In 2017, the Ukrainian parliament adopted legislation reinstating membership of NATO as a strategic foreign and security policy objective. 
So they went away from a while and came back. But that brings us to the second question that we should be asking. People have argued that Ukraine has every right to join NATO, and of course they do. I, I believe that. But the question people aren't asking is, what does NATO get out of this? In December 2013, the Ukrainian president was openly pro-Moscow at the time. He rejected a European Union trade deal and instead took a $15 billion bailout from Russia. This resulted in protests by the Ukrainian people, where Russia supported the president, of course, and the West, well, we supported the protesters. A few months later, in February 2014, the government was toppled in Ukraine and the president fled to Russia. Not all Ukrainians were supportive, though. The minority Russian-speaking East wanted the president to stay, as they are historically ethnic Russian. This began the start of what's known as the Ukrainian Revolution. And at the same time, Russia immediately began seizing government buildings in Crimea and annexes it a few weeks later in March. And then President Putin's approval rating skyrockets. The specifics that lead up to this annexation have differing interpretations depending on who you ask, but there's a few factors that should be considered. From a historical perspective, Crimea has ties to both Russia and Ukraine. It was part of Russia until 1954, then transferred to Ukraine under President Khrushchev. Then when the Soviet Union dissolved, they become independent country and decide to go with Ukraine. They also have significant ethnic Russian population, and there are cultural and linguistic ties between Crimea and Russia. The Russian-speaking population in eastern Ukraine also has historical ties to Russia. Russia views Ukraine as part of its historical sphere of influence. The prospect of Ukraine moving closer to Western institutions like the European Union and NATO raised concerns for Russia about its strategic interests in the region. In 2013 and 2014, Ukraine experienced the Europe Maiden protests, which were driven by dissatisfaction with the government's decision to abandon that European trade agreement. This leads to the ousting of that president. Following the exchange in government in Ukraine, Russia takes advantage of that situation and the timing and takes Crimea over and annexes them, or in their eyes, liberates them, protecting Russian speakers and Crimea's historical ties. This was condemned internationally, but all it really did was lead to tensions. Nobody actually did anything. Following the annexation, we then have conflict in eastern Ukraine. Separative movements emerge in eastern Ukraine, particularly in Donetsk and Lebanon, known as the Donbass region. The conflict escalates into armed clashes between Ukrainian government forces and pro-Russian separatists. Russians have been accused of providing support to the separatist movement in eastern Ukraine, including supplying weapons and fighters. They, of course, directly deny this, but there's evidence suggesting its influence. They not only directly influenced, they directly supplied, and then they directly participated. One thing that we should note is that there's different perspectives on these events, and the situation is still evolving right now. International efforts have all been made to find a diplomatic resolution to the conflict, but it's so complex and sensitive with rating implications for regional stability and international relations. It's a fancy way of saying when people try to tell you these things are simple, they're not. There's so many factors that lead up to them that are involved. So later in Crimea then, just after the annexation, almost immediately is followed by a referendum, a vote, where the Crimeans vote to join Russia. It was called the Autonomous Republic of Crimea at this point with a 97% vote for integration into the Russian Federation with an 83% voter turnout. People wonder if this was legitimate. Some people say with those numbers, it wasn't. Well, 
at this point, it doesn't matter anymore if it was legitimate because it happened and everybody went along with it. While most of the world calls it annexation, Russia calls it liberation, which is probably how they're viewing Ukraine right now. Then after this, we start the separatists seizing territory in Donbass right after Crimea, which is where the war really starts in Ukraine, which is why so many of them in 2021, so many Ukrainian cities said, we believe we're already at war with Russia. But then in May 2014, they get a new president. And then in July 2014, the rebels shoot down Malaysian Flight 298, 283 passengers and 15 crew killed. To date, this is still the deadliest uh, airliner shootdown incident. Result situation is the retaining military gets up ramps up and they go after the rebels and the rebels start to lose ground and some of what they gained at this point the russian army that had been on the border supplying them starts to send troops across the border to begin guiding and fighting alongside the rebels then in september 2014 we have the minsk accords russia and ukraine conduct a ceasefire ukraine agrees to hold elections in the rebel-held areas but those accords were never implemented Ukraine never allowed those elections to happen. Then, in February of 2019, Ukrainian parliament voted to amend their constitution to state Ukraine's goal of NATO and European Union membership. And in April of 2019, Zelensky is elected president of Ukraine in a landslide by 73% of the vote. He's an outspoken vocal critic of Russia. He opposes Russian occupation of eastern Ukraine. He wants to maintain independence from Russia while Putin wants to revive Russian imperialism. In September 2020, President Zelensky approves Ukraine's new national security strategy, which provides for the development of the distinctive partnership with NATO, with the aim of membership in NATO. A few months later, in March of 2021, Russia begins moving troops to the Ukrainian border. And in February 22, Russia's forces conduct a seven-point invasion of Ukraine. President Putin believes in Holy Rus and has repeatedly said Ukraine is not a legitimate country, to Vladimir Putin, this is not another war. It's another liberation. But now you're thinking, okay, so what are you going to tell us now? How's it going to end? I got three ideas on how this might play out. Hey, before I tell you what those three are, I want to say thanks to all of you that leave ratings and review and ask you to do that, to leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. This is very important too for those of you out there on Apple, as that is our largest platform, but not just for that reason. If you're not aware of it, many of the smaller platforms that don't have rating and review system actually show a rating and reviews that feed out of Apple. So if you're an Apple podcast listener, any rating and review and tell people about the show and what you like about it can definitely be helpful and definitely helps me out as well because I can see your reviews and I can share them. In fact, I need to do a show going through talking about all the reviews people have given and I, I think it's great that you guys do that and I love reading them. So definitely do that and help us out on the show and that will be great. Now, looking into this, I don't think I'm really, I don't think I'm changing much. I think I'm adding to my ideas on how this end. From the time of this recording to the time that it's being released, as I record this in early November, there's would have to be a significant change that goes on in the world uh, for me to be wrong on this. Like something would have had to have happened. But I'm looking into possibilities, two of which involve President Zelensky in Ukraine. The first one is that what people remain actually oust him from power, putting in place a new leader that's going to seek and sign a peace deal to stop the fighting. If that was to happen, that could be violent or a peaceful removal. I don't know that it will happen, but I see that as a definite possibility. I think they're getting tired of it. 
The other thing that can happen is NATO pushing Zelensky to quit and just accept defeat or try to accept a peace deal, hoping he'll abdicate any claim for Donbass. In fact, they'll probably require it. And they'll try to help him broker a deal to keep the rest of the country, especially the South, because they're going to need that to survive as a nation. And it's also to keep Russia from having expanded dominance in the Black Sea region. The other thing, too, is they could try to force this on him by slowing or stopping any further financial or material assistance, or at least threatening that, which could be enough to get his attention. There could even be discussions about potential future membership in NATO or EU or expediting it or ramping up the situation. But if that conversation happened, if they have a brain in their head, I'm not sure the membership would actually go down or not anytime soon. Because one thing we've seen historically is, at least the way the math looks, it's decisions like this and ignoring how Russia felt about it that led to military actions by Russia in the region. So this could escalate the situation, which gets to the third point. NATO makes more expansion out or near Russia's borders, either by partnerships or just by military behavior or both. And then this leads Russia to feeling like they're backed into a corner. And one of the things I said on a previous show about their military strategy in Russia, being backed in the corner is the one place you don't want a nuclear power to ever be. I think that NATO forgets that when the Soviet Union collapsed overnight, they lost a third of their territory, half the population, and most of their military strength. And while NATO took advantage of that for their own security, they ignored the impact those decisions would have on Russia and its citizens, who still see every step as an unnecessary and provocative action leading to the potential destruction of the Russian state. There's many Russians believing agreements were made in bad faith at the weakest and most vulnerable times in their history, leaving the government seeing any former states joining or potential former states joining or any other partnerships with NATO is a strategic loss, sure, but also it's a point of national humiliation. Nobody should have been asking why Russia invaded Ukraine. What we should have been asking is, at least what we should be asking now, with all their losses, all the losses in the war, historic losses they've had, what would they be willing to do just to survive? especially if they believe any future steps endanger their sovereignty and existence. Which leads us to question number three, the third right question to ask, which we'll drill down into kind of subcategory questions. Does any of this justify the war? That depends on who you ask. If you ask me, I don't have an answer because I don't think my opinion matters. In fact, I know my opinion doesn't matter because people from NATO, Ukraine, and Russia don't call me and ask me my opinion. That's to say we all have opinions, and there's very few experts, researchers, or people that really understand this kind of stuff. And we all tend to ignore them and just feed off of the people that we agree with that feed to our emotions or our biases, and that's a mistake. So then we ask further, is Russia responsible for the war? That also depends on who you ask. There's significant historical actions to force Ukrainian integration with Russia. We've seen that. But much of Russia's 20th century behavior does give the idea of self-defense merit. But they weren't forced into this. They definitely made their choice on their own. Is Ukraine responsible for the war? That depends on who you ask. It was clear that their decisions, combined with NATO's and previous actions of Russia in the region, would undoubtedly lead to a war. Perhaps they thought the EU or NATO membership would happen sooner so that they could avoid this possibility. Although I think history shows us it takes a lot longer to be approved for NATO than... It takes for Russia to take military action. Is NATO responsible for the war? 
That depends on who you ask. But they chose not to take steps to avert the war and follow through on their promises. I don't think they purposely took steps to make any of this happen. But I'd say they purposely ignored warnings and signs and experts saying these were bad ideas. I would say overall NATO is actually as much responsible as Russia and Ukraine. I think there's equal responsibility among all three. I don't think any of them have any more or less than the other. They all played a part in setting the stage for eventual conflict. And it's a potential conflict that has happened, that was assessed by most of the world, seen by most of the nations, but assessed by most of the world's intelligence community, focused on trying to narrow down when it eventually would take place. Everyone knew it was going to happen. I've always said that. We always knew. The question was the timing. And in world affairs, timing is everything. So I have to ask, what time is it now? 